Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today, we have a podcast that we recorded a couple weeks ago. You might have heard a, a few minutes on the House of Carbs podcast with Joe House. We were in Las Vegas. The Ringer had like a big shindig at Caesars with a live podcast. I was lucky enough to participate. And I don't know, how, how do I say? It got, things got a little crazy the night before. We were there for a couple days. And um, I had the bright idea after a night of gambling and drinking with Joe House, Bill Simmons, Cousin Sal for Cousin Sal's 50th party. We had a huge dinner at Momofuku, Las Vegas in the Cosmopolitan. We just ate incredible amount of food. The chef there, Sean King, really dialed in an extraordinary dinner, and we were incredibly lucky. And I haven't eaten there like that ever, so that was a first time for me. And Matt Rudofker, who is the Momofuku corporate chef, was in town helping out. I don't even know he's corporate chef, director of culinary development. I'm not even quite sure these days. Uh, we have so many titles of people, but Matt was in town. Sean was there. And I don't know, about five in the morning the next day, when I decided to go to bed, I was like, maybe we should do a podcast about the dinner. And we have Sean, we have Matt. I don't even know what happened, quite frankly. I couldn't go to bed, called Joe House. I said, let's go get some oyster pan roast or seafood pan roast at Palace Oyster. And we ate more. And then we started this podcast with uh, Sean and Matt and Joe. And it ha I think it's an interesting conversation. We wanted to talk about how Las Vegas has changed since basically the godfather of Las Vegas fine dining, Wolfgang Puck, opened up Spago many years ago and how it sort of evolved into what was literally a food desert into something that is now highly desirable. And one of the things I really admired about it was how cooks can really have like a high quality of life. And and the fact is, is last month I was told that four of our cooks purchased houses in the Las Vegas area. And, and that's just something you don't hear, at least in New York City. And I'm really proud of what we've done there. And I'm more proud about the culture that's being created in a place that you wouldn't necessarily think that could have like great culture. And I thought it was interesting to talk to Sean and about how different it is to operate a restaurant in Las Vegas and the pros and cons, because there are trade-offs. You have the luxury of being in a casino and there's uh, certain comforts and economies of scale that allow us to do things we couldn't do normally elsewhere. But with that becomes some things that get bogged down in bureaucracy and the largeness of it all. So for all the good, there is some give and take. And that was really interesting to talk about. And another thing that was really interesting was talking about how our culinary profession, as it sort of emerges from these dark ages, we are becoming more mindful and more thoughtful about how to run this better, not to run it as our predecessors. I didn't even say our predecessors, just I think there's a lot of movement to make it better. And there are a lot of constraints that prevent that from happening, but it's really exciting to see the positives. And, and that was really interesting to talk about. I know it's a little bit dated. It's not necessarily evergreen, but there are some really important topics that we discuss, and I think it's really fun. And if you haven't listened to the BS podcast about Las Vegas and shooting craps and betting the don't pass line and this massive meal and gambling. You should. I think it's one of the funnier podcasts I've listened to from Bill Simmons. But before we begin that podcast about Las Vegas and gambling and eating and having fun, it would be uh, not right for me to not address the passing of Jonathan Gold. Uh, it was a complete shock to me. He died at the age of 57 of pancreatic cancer. There is uh, a lot of loving obituaries and amazing articles from a lot of great journalists and food journalists, from the LA Weekly to the LA Times to Ruth Reichel when she was based in LA and when he was at Gourmet and Pete Wells and the New York Times and you name it, Bon Appetit, just about anyone that has worked with Jonathan Gold, they've definitely been touched by him. And Helen Rosner just wrote an amazing, loving memory of why Jonathan Gold was so important to us to the world of food, and most importantly, to the city of Los Angeles. And it's tough. It's been a, it's been a tough, um, tough couple months with the passing of Bourdain. And Tony, I, I feel particularly bad uh, for a lot of people, uh, Lori uh, and her kids. Uh, I think Jonathan 
was as great as Jonathan was as a food critic, as a someone that's won a Pulitzer, the only food critic to win a Pulitzer. I think he was probably as good a father. And I definitely try to keep my distance intentionally because I always get weirded out by getting to know critics too well. But he was an icon. And I, I remember first reading his stuff when he wrote for Gourmet. And that seems so long ago. He was in New York for a couple of years. But uh, when he came back and he worked at L.A. and obviously started to read a lot more of his stuff when he won a Pulitzer because you were like, I remember he reading that headline. Like, How is that even possible? And then you read it and it's not just about writing about what to eat and how to eat. I think Gold had a level of empathy that went deeper and further than anyone else. And I'm not trying to say this disparagingly about any other food critic. It's not. I just think that there are amazing food critics and journalists out there. That's not about being the best. I think that Gold was one of the first people to write about food in a way that was different. And he aligned it in a way that was about writing for the underdog. It was about really stripping away the BS. Was one of the first people to really try to democratize food. And I mean, if you read the Jonathan Gold rules of dining in LA or his book Counterintelligence, there is a common theme. And I think part of that is challenging your default setting as to what you think good is. But people loved him. People loved him. He was an icon and it's tough. It's tough to talk about all this stuff. Um, I was obviously much closer to uh, Tony, but I was, Jonathan was this Titan and all I ever wanted was his approval. And um, I remember every meal I've ever had. I remember most of our conversations we've ever had. And I've always tried to keep a Chinese wall between us because I had too much respect for the guy. And, Without going into all the details, into how mad he was at me, I thought that I would have time to repair that relationship, and I never got the chance. And it's really fucking hard. You think you're going to have more time to make things right, but you don't. I don't know if I would be in Los Angeles, quite frankly, if it wasn't for Jonathan Gold. And I don't think a lot of people would be in Los Angeles cooking if it wasn't for Jonathan Gold. There are a lot of chefs and a lot of restaurants that are opening up in Los Angeles. It is probably one of the culinary, if not the culinary epicenter of America right now. Everyone owes a great debt to him for being here, myself included. And, uh, and he was just the best writer, man. No one tapped into empathy. No one tapped into the human condition better than Jonathan Gold. He was just the best writer, man. No one came close and no one tried to attempt the things that he could do with words and food. He really uplifted so many goddamn restaurants and chefs. I don't know of a food critic that could be a better representation of a city better than Jonathan Gold as a true champion. And I am incredibly saddened by his loss. I'm incredibly saddened for his family and those that are closest to him. And I have great regret for not sending an email that I had crafted because I wanted to make things right between us. And um, I don't know if he ever would have. And that's why I didn't send it. And I, I regret. And I know he was mad at me. And I was mad too. But... It all seems really trivial these days when you think about it. So I didn't think I would get this emotional talking about this stuff. I was just shocked. I was just fucking shocked. And um, I keep on thinking that you don't have enough time. Don't think that there's a tomorrow where you can do the things that you should be doing. And you should find time for the people closest to you, the people that are your friends and the people that you might have differences with, but you know you should be close to. You should say the things that you always want to say, but you can't. If his passing has proved anything, it's, you know, time is short. So, 
It seems like a weird transition to talk about gambling and having the time of your fucking life and and wasting money uh, on a casino. But I am actually going to say it's actually probably an appropriate transition to talk about or to go into the podcast now. It's about being in the moment and celebrating the good times with your friends and laughing and uh, really celebrating that experience. And that's what happened during this podcast and about learning from mistakes and getting better and, and being in the moment and being mindful. And that's what this podcast is about, I think. So give it a listen. Thank you, guys. We have a special podcast today with Mr. Joe House. Crossover! <laughs> I invited myself on. Dave Chang, we're here in Las Vegas, Nevada. The Caesar Villas. <laughs> the villas at Caesar's Palace. We are eating. We are drinking. Yes. And we are, we, there might be some action at some tables as well, well my friend. A, a little action, which is why I, I might be worse for wear today. It was not the brightest idea I've ever had to do a uh, special podcast so early in the day, but been hanging out with Joe and Bill and we had a great dinner for a Cousin Sal's 50th birthday party. Unbelievable dinner. Um, Momofuku. At, at, at our restaurant. Yeah, Momofuku your restaurant. In the Cosmopolitan. And, uh, we had some fun after that. We went gambling and had uh, a lot of food. We had a lot of food. That's what we talked about almost all night last night. And uh, we had more food this morning. But I wanted to bring on Sean. He's the chef here. You want to introduce yourself real quick? Hey, guys. Yeah, Sean King, living here in Las Vegas, running Mofuku. It's a beast of a restaurant. And uh, <laughs> thanks for coming in last night. <laughs> I just want to say before you proceed, Sean King is possibly the handsomest chef. He's definitely the handsomest chef I've ever touched. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I appreciate the opportunity here. He also cooked an unbelievable feast last night, and we're going to go through that, Dave. Yeah, we, we will. And I also have Matt Rudofker. We've been working together for quite some time, and we make fun of each other for our professional sports teams quite a bit. Well, the two pretty pathetic towns, and mine's much better than yours at this point. Yes, it's true. It is true. But we did win the Stanley Cup. That's all we have. Yeah. Um, I'll take a Super Bowl over the Stanley <laughs> Cup any day. Rudo, no your, your background, you're the culinary operations, the director, the grand poobah, the emperor of Momofuku Empire? Well, someone, so, so I think it was Mark Lather said it was the dark overlord of culinary oh. operations. So yeah. I really want that to be my title. But uh, culinary operations for Momofuku, most people in Momofuku know me as Rudy. So I've been with Dave for a little over eight years now and still going strong. That's a lifetime. In, in human years, that's like 45 years, no, eight I, years. I, I feel bad. I think it's a case of Stockholm Syndrome, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, besides hanging out with House and uh, just having a good old time, I think it was interesting to talk about being in Vegas and a lot of the things that I talked to Sean and Matt about that might be interesting to a professional food eater like yourself house or someone that comes to Las Vegas. Cause almost everyone I know more or less, even they hate Las Vegas come to Las Vegas for work or pleasure. And almost everyone now comes here for food too, right? Not just music and gambling. It's an interesting story because not that long ago, probably what the late eighties, Las Vegas was not known as a food town. It was legitimately a food desert. So I, this is why I had to invite myself on. All the hungry homies, all of the taste buds at House of Carbs. We have to give out this, this in, incredible turnaround in food here in, in Vegas. The thing that struck me on the way into town, I drove in with the potfather himself, Bill Simmons, yesterday. And when you look up and see as you're coming into town, there are billboards all over the place, of course, because that's how they do it here in Vegas. And there are as many billboards of shows and musical performances and such as famous chefs, celebrity chefs. Now, there was one celebrity chef I was on the lookout for. I was looking for a, a five-story high picture of Dave Chang. And I, I mean, you don't have to, my, my head, my head size is already that size. <laughs> so walking it, billboard. It was unbelievable that it's clear that the, the restaurants and the chefs are as much of the attraction presently here as any of the shows or the other entertainment here in Vegas. Yeah. And, and I, I think this is like the other topic I sort of want to talk about was just how as Vegas has changed in its sort of culinary arts and its offerings, the culinary scene in America has changed quite a bit in terms of like 
uh, how we perceive it, how we work. And that's something I think Matt can talk quite a bit about. But being in Las Vegas and having come here many years before even had a restaurant, there is, I think, a misperception as to what dining or even working in Las Vegas is. Is, I mean, again, we've only been here about a, a year and a half to two years ha- having a restaurant here. But the one thing that I've been completely surprised about is the quality of talented cooks. Almost all around America, there seems to be a labor shortage. Here, we have less turnover than any other restaurant. Our staff is extraordinarily like responsible and they're just great. And then we have such a strong culture here. And it's dawned on me, it's not just our restaurant, it's all the restaurants in these casinos and off the strip. And Sean, can you tell me a little bit about like what you think of what's going on and what's the positives about it? I mean, it's amazing. I mean, having a support staff like this is, like you said, like non-existent in San Francisco, non-existent in New York. And so I think that what cooks really want is quality of life. And they want to be able to have that work-life balance. And Vegas has that a little bit. I mean, it does? Eh, I mean, it's getting better. I, I mean, say, no, so. I, you're, you're saying it. I'm, I'm just, uh, I would not have guessed that answer. You know, it's surprising because you can get outside the city and go hiking and go, you know, do these things that are outside the strip, outside of the normal Las Vegas indiscretions and just getting crazy and wild. But these cooks are able to come here and actually support their families and buy a house, which is non-existent in most major markets. So it's exciting to have the talent that we have here. Like it's only getting better and better and stronger. And something that's changed with you, Matt, and something that we talk about that again, reflects into how Las Vegas, I think has become a like culinary destination is that quality of life thing. And, and how we all, we've all collectively worked in the business long enough where it's not like the oldest generation, but we worked under that generation. And quite frankly, a lot of it was brutal and hard and you sacrifice everything literally everything to only work in the kitchen. There's no life outside of it. And now that doesn't work anymore. And one of the things is, I think there's a, not just New York, but like every major metropolitan city has great food. So things that were the meccas of food are no longer that have that monopoly. And I think that our cooks here are just happier. And you guys are even doing like yoga. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, as much as it sounds like, you know, silly and that we're doing yoga in the dining room before service. It's just getting your your mental state better before you go into a crazy, crazy evening is, I mean, let's face it, Las Vegas is never really that slow. The more we can get our cooks to really like get their mind right and get their focus on the task at hand is, yeah. So we brought in a, uh, a master yogi to actually guide us through breathing and to stretching before service. So That's it's, unbelievable. So you're describing something I came completely out of the blue to me. I never would have anticipated this idea that work-life balance and quality of life because the experience that I have of Vegas is two sort of components. One is scale. Everything is huge and it's constantly around the clock. So how is it that on the one hand you have crazy service every night. There, there are no slow nights here in Vegas on the one hand, but on the other hand, you're able to have a married life and, and, a, and a home and then kind of live a normal life. How, how do those two coexist? I always say to my cooks and to the, like my managers, like we control all of this, right? As much as like we like to think that it's just like this like wheelbarrow, like rolling downhill, we control the everything that goes on in the restaurant every single day. So the more we're prepared for you know, mentally and also getting everyone on the same side of things. Like we're all creating this culture of positivity. And we always talk about who's gone to eat somewhere cool or like really amazing dining experiences around town and, and getting everyone to really buy into the same idea. And I think that it really buys into that, that positive side of things of Vegas. And Mm -hmm. obviously like, you know, makes happy cooks and happy cooks make great food. Before we go a little bit further, just for the audience, what's your background? Where'd you grow up? And like, how did you get to this point? Oh, wow. So I grew up in the central coast of California, uh, actually born in the Bay Area, up and down in California. My parents and I traveled quite a bit when I was a kid. Central coast has always been my home. So a lot of seafood. I grew up surfing in Santa Barbara, you know, cracking uni on the, on the rocks, just oh. like crushing it. Like that was like House my loves background. Uni. Oh, there was I a do. lot of uni last night. Right. It was a big bowl. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I actually trained as a Japanese trained chef, uh, worked in like small little sushi bars up and down, like really up and down in California. And really just put my dues in, washing rice and making rice for like four and a half years. And that was like sort of like humbled me, um, especially when it comes to Japanese food. I didn't, didn't know anything about it. And years of getting yelled at in Japanese. And I can tell you every single curse word, you know, obviously the very respectful way of Japanese culture is, but definitely got yelled at quite a bit. But um, I moved to Vegas when I was 24. And this is like the first city that I really learned to cook in and cooking at a high level in Las Vegas at a 
let's face it, like, again, you're doing conventions, you're doing IVIP. Like, I've never brought in more caviar in my life than in Las Vegas. So I was exposed to all these really luxury ingredients. And that really taught me how to cook here. And Can you elaborate a little bit on the luxury ingredients? Because that's something that we've had to do uh, with our restaurant here is sell more luxury than we ever have at any of our other restaurants combined. Why is that? Why is it that everyone and all the restaurants have so much like fancy shit? I mean, I think because you go to Vegas and it's all about like going big. You go gamble, you have this experience downstairs, obviously on the gaming floor. When you come in the restaurant, you just want to be like taken care of. And we bring in these ingredients to almost, it's not necessarily shock and awe, but it's like, wow, oh my God, I can't believe you can get these ingredients here in the desert. And thankfully with like the market the way it is here, People are expecting that wow factor. Yeah, we had it last night. Yeah. I mean, we, the, the shrimp from Spain yeah. that you guys had in and, and, and prepared two ways is just mind, mind-boggling. Like, how does shrimp from Spain make well, it from there to here? And Well, a lot of it's just good sourcing. A lot of it Matt, Matt is helping out with. But I'd like to add, like, when we opened it up, right, our menu is very different than what it is today. In a very Momofuku fashion, nothing is ever static. We're constantly trying to figure out to make it better. What was the menu like when we opened up? I mean, there's a little bit of holdovers, but it was really just, you know, Momofuku classics. Was, I mean, really the best way to explain it was basically Sambar and Noodle Bar smashed together was Vegas. But like any of our restaurants, it's about constant evolution. It's something we talk about with all of our chefs and all of our teams that if, if we're not evolving, if we're not paying attention to our guests, our city, our team, and making conscious choices of how to make all of that better, then our restaurants are just going to fail. And part of that is listening to the guests. And one of the things that was fucking crazy to me was the criticism of, we don't have enough luxury items. When we opened up, I was like, what? Like people want truffles. They want caviar. They want the fancy shrimp from Spain. And they want Otoro. All these things that are not stuff that we traditionally work with. And one of the reasons why I was excited to bring Sean on board, obviously he had a, a great reputation, but to like figure out how we could merge his experience, because not only did you spend a long time working in Las Vegas, mm -hmm. you spent a lot of time working in Chicago and San Francisco. Yep. So, I mean, my experience there in Chicago and San Francisco, it's just, it's so different, right? It's obviously California in the Midwest. And so what I've learned here in Vegas was I could really just go like swing for the fences. I could do really anything. And now we're, we're not challenged with finding the most expensive ingredients, but it's like, it's, yeah, a, it's really exciting. It sounds, it sounds terrible. I'm not, we're not trying to <laughs> find the most expensive things, but it's a strange thing when we didn't know how to like communicate that to the guest as to like how to serve some luxury item. Like last night we had this caviar boat Yes, and it sounds obnoxious as hell, but it was fun and it was a celebration. And I forget that people come to Las Vegas to celebrate and money oftentimes is they're saving up to spend it. We needed your help to understand how to find that equilibrium a little bit, you know, and how did you find that balance? Because now it's like, there's way more blingy shit now. Yeah. I mean, really, when it comes to like the restaurants here, like I want people to walk in the door. I mean, think about how many decisions you make on a daily basis. You're just constantly making decisions. You're making, we come in the restaurant, just let us cook for you. Let us show you what we're about. I think that's really what the caviar boat was. And it's meant to be this experience of just putting your phones down, getting into it. We're all in this together. We're eating this from the same vessel and like breaking bread. And like the whole idea of communal dining is really what I'm really excited about. Well, I, I loved that aspect of like, yes, it is kind of a high end. Like this is the introduction to the meal. Like here's the boat. So we are celebrating something. This is a special kind of deal. But it was all build your own. The nori came warmed. You know, you, you take your paper, you scoop the rice in however much you want. You can apportion. There was salmon roe. There was uh, Ocetra caviar. <laughs> we had some uni. And there was all these lovely accompaniments. And then you could build it to your own desires and tastes. I loved that. It was going around the table on the Lazy Susan. Everybody's making their own and getting the flavors that they wanted out of it. And what a, what a great way to kick off a meal. It was tremendous. And one of the things that I know that Matt helps work on, on all the restaurants is to constantly keep this dialogue with all the chefs about what that sandbox is that we can operate in. It's something that I've spoken to Bill quite a bit on the pre-opening diaries, right? It's almost like a constitution that you have the freedom to make as many decisions as you want. And some are going to be wrong, but hopefully they're going to be more right than wrong. And that's the thing is like, he just spoke about communal dining, something that is like so integral to what we do at Momofuku, but he's done it in his own way. And like, what's interesting to me is here you have Sean who actually is on the ground 
helping create this killer team and great restaurant. And I'd like to add, not just like fancy shit. We also have extraordinarily good, affordable stuff. But Matt, how do you come to Las Vegas, which is on the regular now, and like work with Sean? And how is it different than all the other restaurants? Well, I mean, I think one of, for me with Sean and, and also with Ryan, the GM, they've really helped culture here is this air of positivity and this positive energy. And I think it's so important with Vegas because it can get so busy. And when you are busy doing anything, you can take two approaches. You can get frustrated and angry, or you can attack it with positivity. And it's a team that attacks it with positivity. And you see that when you walk into that restaurant, the hosts are smiling, the servers are smiling, the runners are smiling. Everyone's happy. Everyone's excited. And, you know, everyone's happy. I mean, I'm not always happy, but <laughs> most people there are like are genuinely excited to be there. But how how different is that than our other restaurants that we're trying to change? Because I think the culture here is extraordinarily strong. And sometimes the older restaurants that have like been stuck in their ways a little bit, like how difficult is that challenge to change? Work-life balance is I've never heard that more in the culinary profession, right? It's definitely challenging. And I'm, you know, for me personally, I I definitely have struggled with that throughout my career. There's definitely a point in my career, you know, before I left Sambar where I was not the most positive person. I was in a very negative place and that affected me very heavily and affected the people around me very heavily. And it it took leaving that situation for me to to realize the damage that I was doing to myself and the damage that I was doing to others because I was working in that old school mentality and working in a way basically you put blinders on and you almost don't see how your actions are affecting others. Being able to step out of that, work with other chefs, see other things, work with Sean, see how he leads, work with Josh, see how he leads. It helps me be better. And then now that's my job to be a conduit for all of our other chefs to stay connected with each other and not get into a place where they're working with blinders on. And for the record, so if the audience doesn't know, Matt Rudofker is one of the great young chefs in America, nominated several times for a rising star chef under 30. And I always joke he's an old soul because what are you now? 31. 31. <laughs> but he genuinely is like the oldest person I know. He's, <laughs> he, he, he's been in this profession a long time. He started cooking in his, what, 14? Uh, started in restaurants when I was 14. And then when I was 16. For Mark Vetri, great chef of Philadelphia. Yes. We had to call. That's a, um, that sounds like a labor law violation. I, I, <laughs> did, I did actually look it up when I was uh, very young and found out in Pennsylvania, how old you have to be to get working papers and all the rules. So I actually yeah. did do it. God bless the on Amish. The, on the that, they got that so done he's, he's like LeBron James. He's, he's got like 15 years under his belt. The and he's just like, yeah. Yeah. And what was like hard, I think this generation of cooks in their 30s and 40s are going to be a little bit more vocal in describing how hard it was. Like, what was so hard? Like, how do you describe? Like, this delineation between today and how it used to be, and how do you contextualize that? Man, I mean, it was, you know, just getting constantly yelled at and berated by your chef and by your sous chefs and by just that pressure that was put on you is it literally makes you crazy. And like Matt said, working with blinders on, you forget about everything except for food. You forget about your life and your significant other and your family. And you forget about all you care about is your prep list and your mise en place and your ingredients. And now it's changed because of the fact that we're giving cooks a little bit of more of a voice and there's more of an outlet for them with what's going on in the media and like having more support. Cooks have more support now, which I think is great. And I think that their ability to be heard is actually a good thing because at the end of the day, you know, we've all been working in this environment for so long, the blinders get put on, but we forget about that beginner's mind, right? Like the Buddhist way of Shaoxin. Shaoxin is looking at things from a beginner's mind, meaning I know how to do something, but I guarantee that someone from a different culture can make it better than I can. I'm going to learn from them in one way. I, I was a Buddhist major. I obviously know nothing because I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Shaoxin? It's Xiao the, the way of the beginner's Xiao mind. Shaoxin is the cooking one. Yeah, yeah Shaoxin cooking wine. Shaoxin is, is looking at something that you one's delicious, know something one's about. Enlightenment. Yeah, and then you just don't really know anything about it. But you, people will show you something. If you come in with ego and pretentious, like, oh, I know how to make this. It's like, well, no one's going to want to show you something. But if you're like, hey, can you show me how to do this? I'm more open to show a cook something if they've come in with that approach. And now a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Day Chang Show is brought to you by SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. 
Whether you're catching your favorite musician on tour, shopping for the perfect gift, or searching for a last-minute deal to see your favorite team, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices fully guaranteed. Nothing beats being there in person for the biggest plays of the year, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way i found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. I actually just used SeatGeek to buy tickets when I was last in New York City. My sister's kids came to town, and I needed to spend some time with them, and I had no idea what to do, so the Mets were the perfect option and their first baseball game at City Field. So thank you, SeatGeek. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket-buying experiences easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple tickets sites to compare prices and find amazing deals and to get you the most bang for your buck. SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, our listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code CHANG today. That's promo code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, right seat, right now, right from your phone. The Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Yahoo Fantasy Football. It's summer and fantasy football is right around the corner. Turn this football season into a fistful of delicious wins by joining a Yahoo Fantasy Football League. Yahoo spent the offseason making serious upgrades to enhance your experience. Upgrades like easier scoring, new trophies, and a buttery smooth app experience. So when you come to play fantasy football on Yahoo, the wins are as epic as the season is long. But to get in on the wins, you have to get in on the season. So start a league with your squad or just join one of the many public leagues. Just don't miss your chance to play on the best fantasy football platform on the planet. Join a league now at yahoo.com slash daychang fantasy football. That's yahoo.com slash daychang fantasy football. And now back to our show. What was interesting to me is we opened up a new restaurant here in Las Vegas. And not only is Las Vegas, I think, way ahead of what people understand as terms of the quality of cook and restaurant, but because it has such a great infrastructure, like most of the restaurants are in casinos, that is as corporate and soulless as you can be sometimes, right? But somehow we have to make a restaurant work, which is the polar opposite in a casino. We have a casino restaurant in Australia. It's something that I've tried to be allergic to, but now I'm understanding that, wait a second, like people are happier here. They're genuinely happier working in a very stable environment. So that professionalism that you see in many other sort of corporate jobs, I felt as a younger cook, that's lame. And what would you say to yourself, you, Matt, like if you're a younger cook, if they saw you today, what would they say? A younger version of me was the guy was insane and full of shit. With how I talk to our chefs, how I talk to our cooks. When I hear you talking, even me, I'm like, what's he talking about? That's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like wellness and all this stuff, but... I mean, we, we have to change how we operate, one, for our own well-being. We can't just fall into this mindset of, oh, kitchen culture, how things used to be, and just running ourselves into the ground. And then, two, it, we're dealing with a different generation. And more than anything, communication has become our most powerful tool. And you can see with anything, the more you empower people with knowledge and the more that you're transparent with people about what your expectations are, how to meet those expectations, how to be great. and People, especially younger generations, can't take the same level of intensity, yelling. It's just they hear someone talking at them instead of understanding the why behind things and understanding more than anything as a teacher and a mentor and a leader that you care about their development. The biggest thing for me of when our chefs are able to take that next level and be great is when they're able to connect with their staff and their staff knows and feels that their boss, manager, leader, mentor, however you want to care about is invested and cares about their personal and professional development. Were you this way three years ago? No. So let me ask, I want to interrupt because I never have this opportunity where I have three of these giants in, in the food world in front of me. And we're talking about something that is really a sea change in the industry and in the way that food is delivered to American restaurant consumers. And it sounds like the way you guys are talking about it happened in like a single generation. And it's a fairly like recent vintage. 
And I've been thinking about, you know, and had a lot of guests on my show talking about the democratization of food and how that rising tide has pulled up a lot of boats. You know, the standards have been elevated for everybody. And basically, like, the ability to connect with other folks and see how things are done and get best practices. And it feels like all of that has happened in five years in the food industry. How is that possible? This is when I actually understand the culinary world as a sports analogy. Ah. Matt and I had a giant meeting yesterday, and we're talking about how we're going to evaluate talent better, how we need to do better at communicating to our staff about what they need to work on, so on and so forth, even using more data. That's a whole nother subject. But the reality is, is we all have access to the same talent. Everyone complains that, and no one was a bigger complainer than me about like, oh, the fucking millennials, they do this, they don't do that, whatever, whatever. But the reality is, is, Everyone has that problem. So you can bitch and moan about it, or you can try to create a better system, right? And when you look at the organizations that win, not just in sports, but just anywhere, like they have a great culture, they have a great system, they communicate very effectively, and there's almost like radical transparency in what they're trying to do, right? Whether it's the Patriots or the Spurs, right? Like they have ways of evaluating things differently than most, But everyone could have had those players too. It's just that they're better organizations. So I think what it's realized, at least myself, and unfortunately for a lot of people in the industry, even those that work in Momofugu, it is a hard lesson. What I'm talking about right now is the conversation I have with almost every chef about letting go and realizing that what worked for you is not going to work anymore. Who have you guys seen that resonated with you in terms of this sea change? You know, what are some other chefs, some other restaurants that you guys have seen you say, holy shit, I love the way that they're doing that. Maybe it's a communication thing. Maybe it's uh, the feedback you get from the sous chefs and the staff. Are there examples out there of folks that that you're seeing that that are innovating in this space? I mean, honestly, no for me. Yeah. You know, the culinary industry is very behind the times. And I think there's a lot of people who can say that they do and put on an outward facing show that they're these great messiahs. But we have to, for us in Mofoku, and each of us as individual leaders have to question ourselves and dig deep to be able to change. And, you know, it's something that we say to all of our chefs that I have to hold myself accountable to, and that, you know, Dave obviously has to hold his self accountable to. And really it's putting in the framework of what that changes, but then being like, Hey, I have to come to realization that how I'm operating and how I'm working is not actually getting better. And that in three years, how I changed one year ago might be completely obsolete and I need to change again. And if I haven't broken down my willpower, it's to say that every way that I operated before, everything that I thought was right is now potentially wrong. And I think that's really, really hard to do. And I think there are things that, you know, Dave said to me for years and years that I needed to change about myself and things that maybe internally I knew I, I had to I could have communicated about. it better. There was a lot of yelling from my the, end. Yeah. Uh, but like- <laughs> they're, they're, Unequivocally. Dave, not, Chang, not yeah, Dave Chang yelled? <laughs> but, I, but I think there's also a lot of things that I knew I had to do better. And it took me, you know, something took six to eight years for me to actually make those real changes. And some people never can change. Yeah. And I mean, for me, I look at, sports franchises. Cause like I love sports mm-hmm. and the reason I look at sports franchises or just other organizations outside of cooking is simply because again, like, I'm not trying to like uh, say the audience might not understand there is no template for a restaurant group to follow. Like that's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Right? Like well, most restaurants don't even have an HR program, right? Like this well, is, we found that out over the last is, year. Or exactly. So. And, and, even though this has not been overnight, it feels overnight. It does. Partly the reason it feels overnight is we are literally at the forefront of creating these templates and standards and quite frankly, fucking it up. Mm. And, and what pisses me off, not pisses me off, I get pissed at myself is even though we're saying these things, I have no doubt if I'm a cook and I work for us, I would say like, that's bullshit. They don't do this. They do this like shit. He's a hypocrite here. And I'm going to say, you're absolutely right. Because there's a disconnect between what we believe in and where we're trying to go Uh and how we're actually operating it because we still are cooking. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? This isn't sitting at a desk and being like, I'll give you that spreadsheet right away, John. Like, no, that shit doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. But actually, it does now. Because not only do cooks now have to fucking do all that shit, they have to learn how to do spreadsheets, they have to email, and all these functions that you've never had before. 
Yeah, it's actually a, a funny thing. Like it's it's about creating the change, right? And like it does feel like it's happening right now. Because think about the time when you've ever like lost your job, right? And you have this like you don't know what to do, right? You have no idea. And so the actually the idea of the space called liminal space and the space where you're most creative, right? So if you change the norm of what happens in restaurants, meaning you do pre-shift outside or you do yoga or you do things that are unexpected in yep. the environment you're going to be surprised that the cooks are going to feel like they're part of something new and they're going to be more creative. They're going to be open to the new idea. Think about you get lost. I was walking here and I've, I don't come to Caesars that often. I didn't know where I was at, but I was, my sense of awareness was heightened. I look around more I'm, I'm, as opposed to like going the same way to work or doing the same thing every single day. You're doing it and you're going crazy. And I think that too, and this has obviously been addressed this year more than ever before. And it was always addressed, but never in the mainstream enough, at least in our profession, was the broiness and the machismo culture that is definitely like seeps in how I think the kitchens that I worked in, you worked in, you definitely <laughs> yeah, worked absolutely. in, right? Like it's not about being bro. It's like being the toughest SOB you could possibly be. Show no emotion, no fucking tears. The worst thing happens in your life, you still show up to work, right? Like that's just it. And you almost turn into a robot. You suppress all those emotions and like, that's not really good. And we're in an interesting time. And, and now that we're able to talk about it a little bit more openly, I think having, again, this conversation and this dialogue is wildly important as to how we're going to find a better way to operate restaurants. Right. Can I ask, we talked earlier about the history, the legacy of food and restaurants in Vegas and how recently Vegas sitting here in the desert was literally a food desert as well. It feels like in the same way that we're talking about kind of in a single generation, there's been this sea change in the way of restaurants thinking about themselves and how to be successful, that Vegas reinvented food and really kind of overnight um, hit kind of a pretty successful model. What, what do you guys think? All hail Wolfgang Puck. That? Is that right? First yeah. and foremost, he's the real first. OG. He doesn't get enough credit, number one. Yeah. I think partly because of his extraordinary commercial success. People want to not give him the credit he deserves. I mean, he's gotten a ton, but I don't think we're here without him. Maybe there would be another chef probably, but he really set the template for chefs to come here. What did he open here? Spago. Oh, Spago in Vegas. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then someone like Steve Wynn, who like really put a premium on, I mean, when the Bellagio opened up, like that was a game changer, right? Getting Jean-Georges, all these restaurants that would not normally be associated with Las Vegas. And then that just sort of like, like flattened out and mushroomed. And it's something that we've always wanted to be part of because like you can not only create a environment where you can be profitable, you can do things that you couldn't do before. Like that's again, a really weird thing. And in New York, Matt, can you tell them what it's like to work at Sambar? Without scaring anyone else. Like, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, Sambar is a the, the building. You know, it's it's in a very old building. Things are falling apart left and right. Like the ceiling in the basement is literally crumbling on top of you. The health inspectors, there's no food down in the basement. There's no food. There used there. to be this yeah. pipe down in the basement. I've knocked myself out cold several dozen times <laughs> because you just don't see it, right? Like it's hazardous. Sometimes <laughs> I don't like it's, that. It's a restaurant where it's just you have to be unbelievably vigilant to the point of insanity maintaining the quality of facilities. And we act, we do a great job of that. It's just, it Old can building. It's a 170 year old building mm -hmm. and you're working against the building. And most of what you cook is a correlation to the actual building that allows, you know, like there's only so much you can do. Huh. And being able to have a, a, not everything is perfect in our restaurant, but we have like the greatest support staff, like anything we need gets fixed. Like, it's so nice. Because you're sitting inside of this yeah. beautiful building that, that, you know, with all this money. And, they and we, can, we can buy the best product, mm -hmm. right? Like, John has his own, basically, like, forager going to all the markets in, in L.A. and the Santa Barbara area and deliver stuff just for us. It's awesome. And you have opportunities that you don't get elsewhere. So, yeah, I mean, Vegas is now something that is not only great in the casinos, but off-strip, too, right? Like, you're a local. Like, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, when you come to Vegas, like the Strip is not the destination anymore. Everything is happening downtown. Everything's happening in Spring Mountain Road. I mean, even in Summerlin, it's it's expanding to sort of the suburbs of Las Vegas. And downtown was 
Like you didn't want to go downtown 10 years ago. It's sketchy, but now it's gotten this like kind of this cool urban vibe where people who coming from LA or San Francisco or anywhere, even New York, they want to live in an environment that is a bit more urban. And now these chefs are breaking away from the hotels and like literally saying like, well, I don't want to be in a hotel anymore. I want to go do my own thing. And what's happening with Container Park and the east of Fremont Street, there's like these little restaurants that are opening up, but they're phenomenal. So if you come visit Las Vegas, Try to eat a couple meals off the strip, right? Yes, absolutely. Are there some places that you can recommend? Absolutely. Sparrow and Wolf on Spring Mountain Road. Brian Howard's doing a killer job. Uh, probably the best restaurants in Las Vegas right now. What kind of food? You know, he's in Chinatown. So it's a really kind of a weird, like a white kid making sort of like his version of classic Chinese dishes, but also like Japanese, a little bit Kaiseki meal. He does amazing stuff. Of things off a of wood burning stove. Yeah, Killer Chef. And then also Esther's Kitchen downtown. It's amazing. James Trees comes from the Mina Group, comes from these big restaurants. Mm. And he's just like, you know what? I'm not going to, he's not reinventing the wheel. He's doing food that's done in like Santa Monica, but in Las Vegas. All right. Getting good produce, simple Italian food, homemade pastas, homemade bread. Like it's just killer. And then you have this like downtown cocktail scene is blowing up. They're getting creative and they're thinking outside of the box. And the box has been so long in the strip. Now it's like exciting to see the change. And it's happening like right now. And the thing that's happening in Las Vegas is literally happening in almost every town in America. Food is so good literally everywhere now because cooks that were traditionally like, I have to move to San Francisco, I have to move to New York, are no longer doing that. They're they're opening up spots all over the place. And that's like... It's really the best time ever to be a diner. Mm -hmm. But one more question I have on on Las Vegas. What are the pros and cons operating in Las Vegas versus operating outside a casino? Like, do you miss? What do you hate? Uh, What do you hate? I hate that I can't just call my fish guy and say, hey, what do you got? And bring it to me. And I can't go to the- Wait, wait, no, no. What do you you mean? So like, again, like you're Uh, you're going way too far ahead because fish guy and ordering, like (laughs) when does that happen? It happens basically through a computer and you put a requisition into a purchaser. The purchaser sends out a, an order to the vendor and then the vendor gets back to the purchaser. And by that time, it's like, I don't know what I'm getting if I'm getting it. And it's, it's a lot about relationships, right? It's a relationship with the vendor. Obviously, they understand what goes on with the hotels and you're kind of blind to it, a lot of it. But that, that's the way it is in this space. What is it like in a, in a kind yeah. of a non-hotel? Matt, how do you, when you <laughs> order fish, like that's not how you order. No, I mean, when we're ordering fish, there's there's... Dozens of people we might go to, typically, you know, with Sambar, like, I'll have somebody calling me at 4 a.m. like, hey, I just landed at the dock. I don't have this, but I have something that's super great. I'm going to send that to you instead. And you're able to have this closer relationship. You're cutting out a middleman. Are they calling you or texting you Both. at 4 in the morning? No, they're mostly Both. calling me because they know. When are you know, asleep? I, I used to, this is also a big change in my life. I used to always leave my phone on sound and very loud in case... I get a call from a vendor because the guy's on the dock. Yeah, because the 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 prospect of opening up a restaurant without the fish that you want is so mortifying that you are like scared into staying up to make sure that you don't miss the phone call. I mean, yeah, the prospect of telling your chef like, uh, "Yeah, we're not getting the sea bass," and that's important for me. Like our supplier for pork for pretty much all of our restaurants. You know, like I've I've been to every one of their farms. I've been to the processing plant. The family that runs the processing plant have stayed at their house. I have all of their cell phone numbers. And they even have, like, next to Momofuku, they have Crazy Matt because they know my <laughs> the specs that we want on pork are these sometimes the are insane. Uh, Benton's purchases from them, but oh, it's Heritage it. Foods. Oh, okay. And basically they work with a small group of farmers, and, and we've been purchasing from them for over a decade. What part of the country is that? In Madisonville, Tennessee. Oh, awesome. But – Back to the Vegas part, right? That probably drives you apeshit. I mean, I know when we opened up, I was like, what the fuck? We can't order? I can't order a red onion? Like, what the fuck? To get the onions we wanted took like five weeks. Why? Because of this giant corporate bureaucracy. Like, it's necessary, but you sacrifice like instant gratification and quick fix for like this giant- Where do you get a red onion from in Vegas? I don't even know anymore. Thank well, God. You just have to Probably go through LA? two to three middlemen yeah, to right. be able to get the product. You can't, you yeah. know, it's just really hard to okay. get what you want. It is. And thankfully, like after, you know, almost a year and a half of business now, we we have a relationship with the hotel and they know that like we have our sacred cows. So Heritage Foods, obviously we're using. And now it's, that's not the cheapest. It's the commodity with the hotel. Maybe not a commodity they want, you want to use. They want to use what's the best for all the other outlets to use. Whereas we want to bring in something special that's, 
again, when you dine, you go, wow, there's a story behind this, right? Where there's not really a story behind the red onion. The red onion is a red onion. You can get it from a lot of different vendors, but like heritage foods, we want to buy from. We want to buy from our fish guy who we want to buy from. And it's that relationship we have to really kind of, it's that balancing act. And it is, it is frustrating at sometimes. And on a restaurant in Australia, it's like a 20 seat restaurant. It's really intimate. And I don't buy our meats or fish from the casino. We just do it ourselves Uh because like they just come to our door and we get in trouble every time. Oh, so I don't have the patience. So he's way more patient than I could (laughs) ever be, but there are a lot of differences. So what else are some other big differences? And then I want to like explain to how, how like the inner workings of the Vegas commissary structure works a little bit. Yeah. So other pros, right? So the hotel has a whole, you know, they, they do all of our purchasing for us. So they are responsible for most of the, the inventory and the numbers and they house a lot of stuff for us. So for instance, we can order things every day of the week if we want, because we have an offsite warehouse where they supply uh, things that maybe things that economies most of scale is just like something yeah. you can't even it's, fucking it's a big, understand. It's, it's a co- Costco it's style warehouse where if we run out of detergent, I can literally just go put a quick order in and they bring it to us right away. And there's a lot of that, as opposed to running to a restaurant across the street or borrowing yeah. from somebody in the city. It's it's definitely a uh, definitely different. I worked at Bally's Casino in Atlantic City for two weeks in like 2003, when I came back from Japan. No shit. And I worked at their noodle bar because at the time there were like no noodle bars, and I was blown away looking at the very first sort of commissary structure where it's a centralized kitchen, and you literally it's like a supermarket, and so much of what gets made food-wise in Las Vegas is like not what anyone that visits Las Vegas could understand. Mm -hmm. Like literally you have a cart and everything is like a computer barcode and you can just run around this giant fucking warehouse full of every goddamn thing possible that's either cooked, made, soup, sauce, whatever, and just throw it on this giant pallet. And then like when you check out, they check everything out and it's like it deducts from your account. Right? Like it's awesome. It's fucking awesome. We can't do that in a normal restaurant. (laughs) Yeah. I miss the scale of things too. Like working at a smaller restaurant where you have to really be smart about what you put on the menu, right? Because again, the busier restaurant, you have to be, it's all about production and all about execution. So a smaller restaurant can usually put on a little bit more, you know, things that require a little more touches and not necessarily more intricate, but just like you have to be mindful of like what sort of environment we're working in. Mm -hmm. And a hotel thankfully is like really supportive of whatever we do and they give us that outlet. And so, yeah, the warehouse is an amazing resource, but again, yeah, that's the biggest frustration as far as like getting the product we want. Other pros is like, it is, it's a comfortable working environment. I mean, the place is beautiful. It's a brand new environment. You know, we have a facilities department. If something breaks, I can just call a couple guys and they come up and fix it pretty quickly. A light bulb goes out and I don't have to get up there and you know, on top of the ovens and try to figure it out myself. There's a guy that comes, a team of guys that come and fix it right away. So that's where I'm sort of figuring out where we're going to go as a whole for restaurants. Like what's the sacrifice, right? To embrace that professional corporate bureaucracy to get the better quality of life and sacrificing that personal touch. I question how that's going to shape. And that's to me sort of what's terrifying and fascinating at the same time. So like I'm obviously in DC, I'm housed from DC. You had the Momofuku CCDC right there that where you had the opportunity to have some input into the design and into like the footprint and all that kind of stuff. How does that sort of compare? You know, it's its own standalone venture. They're both hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, opening any restaurant is not fun. But at least like facilities wise and in terms of. uh, Yeah, we we upkeep everything, right? Uh Like it's just different. Like one's like a co op and this one, like we own outright. Okay. It's just a very different thing. And I only want to bring this up because when we were having dinner last night, like the questions were like, hey, why is it this way? And how come they're serving this way and you don't do it at the other restaurants? We simply have way different ways of doing things here that we just could never do anywhere else. And it's taken us some time to figure out, like, we can't do the shit that we do in New York here, right? And that's why it's been good to have this sort of organic growth. Without going crazier into this, what are some pros and cons to diners coming to Las Vegas, right? Like, what do you hate and the people that you know that work at all the top restaurants in Las Vegas, what are the pet peeves? Wow, there's quite a few. Um, people just phone it in. You live in Las Vegas and you think that like, oh, I work at a really fancy you know, name brand steakhouse, for instance. And they just phone it in. They buy not quality beef. They put a fancy sauce on it. They try to 
put it on a wood board and tell you it's great. Right? Like, and come on, thinking, come on, name, name one. I can't house. say. <laughs> come on, Sean. I have friends that well, work there. And I we'll won't edit say it out it's, later. But it's just, it's just frustrating because it's like, come on, man. Like you are so much better than this. And you're letting like the glitz and glam of the casino affect the way you're cooking food. And it's super frustrating. I mean, I've been to a lot of restaurants out here. They're just like, they just don't give a shit anymore. And so we're trying to create an environment that's like, we actually care and, and create a restaurant. It doesn't feel like you're in a Las Vegas casino. What about pet peeves though, when you see a diner? Like what are some tips for the diner to like do properly here? Chopstick etiquette, learn to use chopsticks properly. No one needs to shake them off. Like there's gonna be splinters <laughs> in them. I, that drives me absolutely insane. You're drumming on the table with it. Just stop. It's what a, about all the bachelor and bachelorette parties? Uh, you get used to it. Definitely, you know, <laughs> as you see, as you see, you know, a group of uh, scantily clad women, then they just order just obnoxiously. But like, I mean- what, I, like, let, let me go back up. <laughs> like, what is it that's so obnoxious? That's what I want to get at. For someone to be like, I don't give a shit about the restaurant universe. I don't mm. give a shit about- you guys taking care, better care of yourselves. I need something that's fucking useful. Like, what do I need to do to know that I'm not going to be obnoxious when I come to a Las Vegas restaurant? Ordering things like if it's a group of 10 ladies and you order five <laughs> ramens all split. And it's like, okay, great. Eggs well done. Overcooked the noodles. Less salty broth. It's just like we make so much broth and so much stock. And, and we really do a good job of like balancing the seasoning. You know, asking for sauces. Like we don't have A1 sauce. I do not have A1 sauce. I can, Is that the number one request? We A1 get a lot sauce? of A1 sauce requests. You do? Wow. What, for the Cote de Buff? Uh, yeah. But not just our restaurants. Like all restaurants. What are like some commonalities? Everyone? Every restaurant? Like Nobu here gets A1? Like I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, I think that really... Uh, bugs me, especially with our restaurant, is they think that we're completely no, Asian no, no, restaurant. No, 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 you can't talk about our customers that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think that you know, Let's hypothetically just, say another hypothetically, restaurant, another restaurant. Just you know, you you have a stigma of what like a restaurant is when you walk in the door, right? You through either the name or what you've heard about the chef, and so I think that like having a closed mind of what we're actually like cooking, as opposed to like just looking at the menu, talking to the server, getting to know what we're actually doing here. People make the decision before they walk in the restaurant. If you are going to have a like big night out, right, in Las Vegas, what time do you think they should eat? Well, everyone dines at seven thirty-eight. That's sort of the time. Everyone, I would go early. I'd go early. Six thirty is sort of like the prime dining hour, or a little even later. Las Vegas is actually surprisingly like a later dining crowd. Actually, mm. it doesn't exist. The seven thirty to eight thirty dining is sort of prime time in most restaurants. We come a little later. Come in at nine o'clock. Come in at nine thirty. You know, you're surprised you get a better table, usually better service. It's after the turn, right? The turn is the busiest time in our restaurant. Uh, and then I think the real diners come later. So if we were like going out tonight and like having like, we'd go, I don't even know what we do. We'd see some show or whatever at like 11 o'clock. Mm -hmm. Or we want to go gambling at like 1130. And our reservation was at eight o'clock. Like what kind of meal do you think they should eat? I mean, really, I would go communal. You know, order stuff for the whole table. You guys like... Just let whatever they're doing. Large format dining for me is like, is really, really a big celebration of food. I think you're lying because uh, I think you wanted to hurt people. You hurt us last <laughs> night. And that's why I'm setting you up because you're, you're straight up fucking lying. You fucking hurt us and you wanted us to suffer. You told me to go big. I, I, you, <laughs> you said they want to misinterpreted me. I do want to go through the menu yeah, a little bit. I think you fucking killed us. I mean, and we, you were like, hey guys, let's ruin their fucking night. Like we tried to do to every customer that comes into Momofuku. Let's ruin their night so they can't do do anything fun at all. I mean, we want to make it memorable. I mean, I <laughs> it was memorable. You're definitely remembering it today. So. That's a fact. I'm yeah, trying to remember all the stuff that we, we had a ham course that was ham with uh, corn medallades, corn medallades, yes. caviar, the wagyu, the potatoes. The what's the, the, what's the potato dish? I need, we need to go through that. Your invention, your your Chicago nachos. <laughs> so it's basically like I moved to the Midwest, and the Midwest is all about meat and potatoes. And coming from California, everyone was just like, oh, you know, they're not going to want your hippie cuisine, avocados and quinoa and stuff. Not that I was going to bring that, but they said meat and potatoes, who do you have to bring? So big steaks, you know, and I was like, this is silly. So I decided to like do like this, like honey mustard crushed beef carpaccio, mm. right? So honey mustard carpaccio, sear it really hard and thinly slice it and just basically pile it high with French fries. And serve it with like just like either creme fraiche or mayonnaise. And you take the beef and you wrap it on the French fry and you just dip it and it's super delicious. Mm. And so this dish is basically sort of like the reverse of that, where you take small little peewee potatoes, we lightly steam them and crush them in their hands and fry them into like golden brown, delicious honey mustard and just like this crunchy ryu kind of almond garlic, spicy chili. It's delicious. And then we crush the whole top of it with about an ounce and a half of A5 uh, Kagoshima beef. 
Oh, so it's this like, it's just- yeah. I mean, it was, it was like, I, I didn't understand what I was eating. I was like, well, this is really fucking good. And he's trying to ruin my night. <laughs> it looks, it looks a little unnerving because it's the beef is so thinly sliced that it just sort of melts again, like that, like meaty nacho gooiness. And it's definitely, uh, experience. Yeah, it's a dark, ruddy dish <laughs> with, with round balls and everything. And you're like, how do I, what's the right way to portion this? But then it comes on. And the, the tiny potato puffs with the with the crust on the outside and the meat, the salty meat that the, the, that comes off of that, and that the spice, oh, the little bit of heat in there, oh daddy. It's so it was a spectacular. <laughs> I don't know how I'm gonna it's export this shit, but I'm gonna export this shit. We gotta get it to the DC, to the East Coast. <laughs> All right, we're 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 gonna wrap this up. House, you wanna end this? Because I'm so bad at ending these fucking things. I don't know. I I, I it's a <laughs> Spectacular opportunity. Thank you guys for all of the input. Thank you for the, the meal last night. Thanks for trying I'm making to kill you, us. I'm making you stay for my podcast to talk about the don't come line. Okay. Done. <laughs> Done. That was that was the podfather himself. Yeah. We have to recount what we what happened after we ate the meal yeah. that uh, Chef Sean tried to hurt us with. He did a great I job. I think he's a bullshit artist. <laughs> he did a great job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Thank Sean. You. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.